Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we're continuing our read-through of Mockingjay. We're looking at chapter 21 today. So, Brittany, could you start us off with a recap, please? So, Peter wants someone to shoot him or give him a nightlock pill to take so that he won't hurt anyone else. Or end up back in the hands of the Capitol. Wow, what a, what a great, great way to start the chapter. Right. <laughs> oh, Peter. But the group won't agree to end his life and instead find food to eat. Peter hands Katniss a can of lamb stew and it takes her right back to the cave in their first games. Then the anthem plays with photos of the supposedly dead victors and film crew. And President Snow comes on the TV with an annoying speech about Katniss being a nobody who couldn't even save herself and that the rebels don't have a leader to rally behind now. President Coyne, though, interrupts his broadcast, introducing herself as the leader of the rebellion, which is perfect timing. (laughs) Love that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And gives a call to action eulogy for Katniss. Since above ground is too dangerous with the density of pods and cameras, the group decides to travel underground, which is where Pollux had to work along with many other AVOXs in terrible conditions for years. PETA shows a glimpse of his old self when he says Pollux just became their most valuable asset, and the whole group travels for hours until they have to rest. When Katniss is on watch, she and PETA talk about Tracker Jacker Venom making memories look shiny, He asks if she's still trying to protect him, and she says yes because protecting each other is what they do. She strokes his hair until he falls asleep. Then, when they're all preparing to leave, a strange hissing Katniss sound can be heard. Ends on a great note, too. Right? (laughs) Bookends for this this chapter. This whole part of the book, (laughs) really just this whole series, just always great things going on. So uplifting. <laughs> oh, look, Peter can sleep for 40 minutes. Oh, and now what is this new horror? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's head into our first section. These are our striking moments, the moments that stood out to us during this read-through. What did you have to bring? One thing I was thinking about is when, at the, at the beginning of this chapter, when Katniss is thinking about Peter's request to be killed mm-hmm. uh, or or and able to kill himself, and she thinks it would certainly make things easier on the rest of us not to have to shoot him. And every time I read these books, how kind of emotionally removed she is always Mm. is striking to me because as the reader, we're like, Katniss, obviously you love, like, not talking about in love, whatever. You know, it's like you love Peter. You deeply care about him. Mm he means a lot to you and you've shared so much you have a hard time not thinking about Peta. so to have her so emotionally removed as she's thinking about things like killing him or him killing himself and that making it easier on them it's like yes that it, that is factually true it'd be much easier for him to choose to do something himself than anyone in their group having to kill him having mm-hmm. to shoot him but it still just feels abrasive, you know? Yeah. Because it's like, no, this is beta. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was just thinking about that again. And I guess I wonder if she 
has accepted thinking about him and and purposefully tried to think about him in a removed way because mm-hmm. of how painful his hijacking has been for her and him almost killing her has been and also you know having even before that just had him in the capital's hands and you know having to try not to fall apart because of how distressing the situation is with Mm. Peta, and so i don't know if her tone as she's thinking about these things is based off of that kind of learned, implemented, sustained practice that's helped her get through, or if part of it has to do with the direness of the situation, that she doesn't have time to dwell on how she feels about it. It's just, what is the most logical thing for us to do? What strategically makes sense? What is the thing that will help as many people as possible survive this and not die before I can take out Snow, not have all of us get captured and things like that. If it's just that she doesn't have the mental space for it. I mean, Mm -hmm. because this is very soon after Boggs dies. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, that's that's an emotional event too. Again, he's the only person who's ever really been completely truthful with her who's been in a position of power and so yeah I just wonder if she's like emotionally shut down and just so exhausted and like can't deal with the emotions so she doesn't yeah that's really interesting it it actually makes me think of my first touch point which was about how Katniss feels surrounded by the arena Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I think that this is about how she is in a way kind of in this arena style mindset where not only, you know, she mentions how she's fighting for her own survival and for PETA's, but also how Snow is pulling these strings in these ways and setting up a situation where she has to weigh killing people she doesn't want to kill because mm-hmm. of the actions of the capital, because of the actions of Snow. And here, PETA is the best example of that, where she doesn't want to have to kill PETA, but because of the hijacking, because of the situation they're in, because of PETA's own trauma, she even describes it as possibly the kindest thing to do would be to kill him. Mm-hmm. But then she has to weigh that against defiance, against agency, against her own care for PETA, you know, all these other kinds of things that are happening there. And for me, my read-through is definitely like, oh, she's having these more strategic thoughts and she's kind of analyzing this in a similar way as she was having thoughts about what is she going to do about Finnick? Sure, they're allied now in the 75th games, mm-hmm. but how long can that last? And yeah, it just really reminded me of that, that a similar kind of mindset, but I think even more dire, even more awful because of the elevated circumstances of war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and some of that made me go off thinking about something I remember. One of my friends who's a psychologist talking about, well, <laughs> being like, there's this interesting, stu- some studies that I was <laughs> reading about. <laughs> this might interest you. <laughs> and it's about, like, if you grew up in traumatic circumstances or traumatic family dynamics, household, sometimes even as adults, if, if you grew up in that as a kid, 
it's difficult for you to feel what you feel mm. around other people. Mm. You often have to be alone to sit with the feelings and like actually acknowledge them because you were trained to or you trained yourself to not feel them for so long around other people and you know the needs of other people whether those were because they actually needed something or because their needs were so dysfunctional that if you did anything out of line or you know whatever it would be you could be attacked for it you could you know and so you had to constantly kind of walk on eggshells you had to assess the situation you know to yeah. protect yourself and so I wonder if any of that could be going on here for her not that I think that her that we get any indication that her parents were abusive in in a direct way but obviously with her mom going into the deep depression that she went into mm -hmm. and Katniss and her sister and her mom almost dying because of it. I mean, that, that's a traumatic event. And living in Penn M is a tra traumatic event if yeah. you're in the districts. And so, yeah, I kind of wonder because even when we think back to the games, it's when she's keeping watch and they're not talking. You know, she, she has the space. Or it's after Rue has been killed and she's in a tree and is mourning that internally mm -hmm. um, that, that we see her process some of her emotions and right now it's like one this is war situation and two there's all of these people around you know and maybe she has a hard time even considering what her feelings about the situation would be yeah absolutely another thing that i thought was really interesting <laughs> is that when league one was being critical of capital citizens for hoarding food, mm -hmm. Gail said, fortunately, or we wouldn't have dinner. Mm -hmm. Which I just thought was really interesting because you would think that Gail would be the first person to hop on the criticize the capital for their excesses um, because he's been doing that forever, right? It was just, yeah, it was interesting to see him, not, not that he's, it's saying that he's on the capital side or anything like that, but not taking an opportunity to be frustrated about it and making a comment about how it turns out to be positive for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was just kind of, uh-huh, what's going on with you, Gail? Yeah, that is interesting. Maybe he's just hangry. He's like, <laughs> I don't oh, want to talk about this. <laughs> exactly. I don't even have time to be angry at the Capitol when we're at war and I'm hungry and tired. <laughs> yeah. Or it's like, we've known about the Capitol's excesses for so long. I don't have time to get District 13 people up to speed. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe a kinder look at it would be that him spending so much time with the film crew maybe mm. has affected him in a way that he doesn't just put everyone into the same bucket of should die, you know? Mm, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and, and that information coming from Masala maybe mm -hmm. connects him to that. That's interesting. Yeah, and then the last one was just kind of taking note of Jackson, again, not wanting to kill Peta or mm. him to die. And not being willing to leave him behind either. Uh, just kind of going back to what we were talking about in one of the other episodes. I think it reinforces an idea that 
she is grateful to him in particular for helping save lives in District 13. Mm-hmm. And sure, I mean, we could also say, oh, maybe it's because of her role. You know, she was second into command, and I guess now she still is. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like it's more than that. Agreed. The very first thing she says, like, on the first page of this chapter is, don't be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, that's her response to Peter being like, obviously the next thing that you should do is kill me. (laughs) She just wouldn't consider it. Yeah, she's not thinking as a tactician here. Mm -hmm. Um, Boggs was, mm -hmm. right? He was like, kill Peter. Yeah. Like, that's what he told Katniss to do, which was also interesting, but... But then I wonder... You know, if there's an element of the fact that she wasn't the first in command, she wasn't in Boggs's role, so Peta was more of a brother in arms, sibling in arms to her. And, and you know, I, I certainly have never experienced anything like this, but many of the media that I've consumed about the military brings up this idea of a close relationship between allies that's built over when you're in the same unit, when you're going through the same things. And so I think that there's a lot of interesting things to think about of her being grateful to PETA for the things that he's done beforehand. But in addition, I I wonder if there's an element of, it's ridiculous to think of her allowing anyone in her unit, anyone she's fought alongside or experienced these things alongside to kill themselves, to give up in that way. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's true, but also he did just arrive. She spent a lot less time with him. Yeah. Also, I mean, maybe it's just kind of an unheard of thing in District 13 as well. Mm. Uh, A waste of life. They don't waste anything, right? Interesting, yeah. And with their population a while ago almost potentially dying off because of Mm -hmm. some sort of plague, you know, like, yeah, I could see those ideas of no you should live like everyone should live yeah uh, if at all possible especially a young virile young man oh, like Peta, right in breeding age that's <laughs> <laughs> how district 13 would think about With it right good stock <laughs> <laughs> at least that's what dalton says mm-hmm. <laughs> and i believe <laughs> But what about you? What are your what are your striking moments? Yeah, one of the ones that came to me was the broadcast with Snow and Coin's messages about Katniss and the others, uh, but Katniss in particular. As I was reading, I was kind of interested in the fact that both of their messages are mostly described. Their the, their dialogue isn't written out. Katniss's narration describes the kinds of things that they say, things that might even have been direct dialogue, in some ways sound like direct dialogue, but are not presented as such in just the prose of how it's written out. Like I remember she describes how Snow says that she was just a girl who had some ability with a bow, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which sounds like a Snow line. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't in direct quotation. Exactly. Mm. And I think that it was actually a really effective tool because it helped to kind of place distance between the reader and the words that they were saying and Mm -hmm. their messages, which is like how Katniss feels distanced from those messages because of how untrue they are. 
uh, not only because of how they're wrong about her being dead, but also (laughs) because of the lack of sincerity that she knows is coming from both of them. How good are you with a bow, Snow? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Just, like, untrue statements. Exactly. Manipulative statements. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, the third book in the series having so much to do with the way that symbols and narratives are utilized as propaganda, uh, are utilized for the aims of the powerful. Katniss is over it in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Katniss doesn't see the importance of having to hear every single word they say or think about every word they say. It's more of just, this is what they're saying, and this is how I'm taking it. Yeah, I just thought that that was a really, really fascinating narrative device to to change the way that those kinds of narratives and and messages are being communicated to the reader. Because I did find it affecting in making me think like, yeah, not only are these even less reliable, they're also less important for the kind of analysis that we've done for these messages of how they they do world building and things like that at this point we know it all mm-hmm. you know we've done that that before the one thing it really does though is it also helps to show a parallel between snow and coin mm-hmm. which i think is a powerful new change totally. uh, and having both of them only really have a single line or two in their own dialogue, but the rest of it described, I think is just, yeah, a really interesting and effective way of showing how the narrative has changed and still adding new insights through that writing. That's really fascinating. I I wouldn't have noticed that, but yeah, it's, it's a interesting idea that they're changing how what they're saying is communicated on the page. It's not exactly taking their agency away, Mm. but it's, I guess, taking some of their action away. Mm. And maybe that pulls focus to the people that these powerful leaders' actions actually affect. Mm. It's not about these two leaders. It's about the people who are hearing what they're saying. And we see that both of them are being insincere Mm -hmm. and trying to manipulate the nation. And this is, it's it's putting Katniss and the whole team that's there right now in the same position as everyone else in Penham. And then you have Coin and Snow who are not there. Yeah. Um, and you know, obviously their their top circle are not there either, right? They they know the lies, they know the tactics, they know how carefully these speeches were written and argued about, you mm-hmm. know, and um even though Snow and Coin come off very differently, their tactics are very similar. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I liked the the words that you used, like it pull it pulls the focus away. Mm. Because it make, it makes me think about like a similar tool that's used in filmmaking is cinematography, how shots are framed are going to affect the way that a scene is perceived mm-hmm. and the the messages that it's then communicating. And so, you know, it's a different art form, but both art forms have yeah, various ways that they can 
shift their methodologies to communicate different things mm. and to, to focus on different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My last striking moment was when Katniss takes the key to Peta's cuffs and she puts it in her pocket. Clinks with the pearl. And it clinks with the pearl. And it's just a little line there that I think is, you know, a great symbolism mm. uh, harkening back to my 11th grade English class, uh, <laughs> right? It, it, it's sim- great symbolism of their relationship and how their love is clinking against a representation of the ways that that love has been restricted, the ways that their agency is restricted and yet how they continue to push against those restrictions. Mm-hmm. Something that before this read-through, I would have gone right past and not kind of spent the time to think about, like, ooh, what's the symbolism here? <laughs> but, oh, that's so funny. From, like, the first time I read it, I'm like, oh, this is the genuineness of their relationship and connection within the confines of what the oppressive system does to them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, not for me. Yeah, I know. I was just like, give me more plot. <laughs> what happens next? <laughs> Who's dying? <laughs> I mean, you also read it very fast. I did do that, yes. Because you want to talk to me about it and flirt. That's very true. Well, let's move into our next section, From Another Point of View, where we discuss these scenes from perspectives other than Katniss's. There are two main ones I was thinking about. One is just, whether it's Jackson or any of the other District 13 people in Squad 451, as they're sitting around eating canned capital meals Mm. because like it's not just canned food like these are canned capital dishes Mm -hmm. so it's not like ah can of tuna like this is the lamb stew with the dried plums inside like these are made i mean even a can of tuna would be a big deal for district 13 (laughs) yes true (laughs) and cream-filled cookies that they're Mm -hmm. passing around, which I love that they're passing them around because if we're thinking about, okay, we are in a war. People are going to be after us any minute now. (laughs) You would think, okay, let's just get the most protein, the most, like, bang for my buck sort of (laughs) meal situation. But no, they're trying the cookies. Mm. And of course, why would you not try the cookies? Like, it's just such a human thing because even in a situation like this, you're going to try the cookies, yeah. you know? And so I was just thinking about them experiencing these flavors for the first time and it being not the same situation because, well, <laughs> I guess we could argue. We don't know how... These people from District 13 got there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a reaping situation, but are they, is this required of them? Mm. You know, it, it's, is it more like a draft than it is a volunteering situation? Right. You know, uh, that's the impression I get, at least. Like, you're from District 13, that means you are a soldier, you have to do this training, and you have to be ready to go into battle at any moment, and that's your life. Absolutely. So, it, yeah, it just, it kind of was bringing me back to Katniss when she first goes to the Capitol. She's mm. there to fight to the death and, in her mind, probably die. 
not because she wants to be there, but because she's forced to. And obviously, you know, the District 13 people probably want to be there more than she did because Mm -hmm. this is for a revolution, not just child sacrifice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But they're both in situations where they know that they only have a matter of hours or days left to live, you know? Mm -hmm. And yet in the midst of that and the stress and terrible things going on, they can take joy out of these exciting new meals that they've never dreamed of eating. No. So yeah, I was just thinking about like the kind of sensory experiences that they're having the smells and the tastes and the textures of just yeah things that they've never had and how like I don't know if you've ever had a situation where you feel a little silly because you're giddy about something or something makes you smile even in the midst of like a terrible situation Mm. because it's just I don't know something new or something interesting and I feel like that would be what they're feeling like maybe they would feel silly at smiling after popping one of the cream filled cookies in their mouth but like it just takes you to almost a kid like yay joy you know christmas we got gifts or you know whatever the situation is and so yeah i was just thinking about them especially i mean (laughs) spoiler alert some people are going to die. I'm not saying who's <laughs> dying, but some people are going to die. And it was just like nice to kind of sit thinking about these, you know, some of these people got to experience something new and something exciting. And not that they're fighting for cookies, but like they're fighting for a world in which they don't have to be stuck underground and only have the same meals every single day Mm -hmm. that are measured out according to their body weight and you know what they need to get to the next meal you know like they are hoping for yeah a a different social situation on the other side of it yeah yeah that's really really interesting and I also like how you highlighted how they are passing the cookies around. Mm. How this is something that's a new experience, but it's one that they're experiencing together. How there's a camaraderie there. It is like the opening Christmas presents because you're doing it with others. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that that's really interesting uh, and a moment that I, I certainly wasn't thinking of, but is certainly going to be a part of how they're experiencing this. Yeah, I could imagine them be like, oh, try mine, exactly. you know, like Katniss and Peta at the the feast exactly. after the victory tour. I just want to try a bite of everything. Like, we have to save Rome. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just wanting to try as much as you can because, yeah, it's all new and exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and so when there's the line... <laughs> I'm just like, Katniss, why are you so dark? Something about wondering how many of us will ever see the sun again Mm. or whatever. And I'm just like, even if some of them don't see the sun again, at least they got cookies. (laughs) 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 And then going on to a less heartwarming, well, not that the end was heartwarming, but you know, (laughs) as heartwarming as we can get in the Hunger Games. My second other point of view is snow. Mm. Because I love that 
from Kata's perspective, she says, Beatty gives the reins back to a very controlled snow. Mm. First of all, I love the phrasing because it's Beatty giving the reins back mm-hmm. to snow, which must bother snow so much mm-hmm. that this scum from the districts has power over him mm-hmm. because he does in this situation yeah. he is controlling his ability to be heard which he's never had to deal with until baby came along yeah so i imagine it not just being that snow is annoyed at how this interruption does kind of undermine his whole facade with the pan am flag in the back and mm-hmm. like trying to act like, oh, the tide is going to turn and I'm still in control and all of these things. It's just like, yeah, no, that's not what's happening. So it's it's clear in in that regard. But I think that it would twist the knife in a different way, just that he knows that this is coming from people in the districts. You know, like, mm-hmm. I'm sure he would... It would obviously still bother him to be betrayed by someone like Plutarch, but I think he would be more okay with it than being bested by someone from the districts, by Mm -hmm. his slaves, you know? So yeah, I was just thinking about him trying to hold it together. (laughs) And clearly Katniss can see that it's a very controlled snow. (laughs) He has to put an effort to try to maintain his calm and uh, collected and powerful facade Mm -hmm. that no doubt he can't be feeling because I'm not even sure why he's making this announcement. Mm. Does he really believe that Katniss's death will make the rebels want to give up? The rebels have taken every single district. Mm -hmm. How can he possibly think this would make enough of a difference to to, yeah just have them surrender and like no we'll give you the districts back like (laughs) i think he's smart enough to know that that can't be true and so i don't know if this is just like a last ditch effort to do anything just out of desperation yeah he he doesn't know what else to do Mm -hmm. because He's never really had to question his power or authority Mm. in decades and decades. I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised if he hasn't felt insecure about his power since 65 years ago. Mm. Until, obviously, Katniss comes in and blows everything up. Mm -hmm. But even though it... (laughs) does give me joy thinking about him squirming (laughs) under the pressures of this situation and the hopelessness of what he's doing. It's not going to work. But also still trying to humanize even a terrible person. Mm -hmm. Thinking about the fear that probably has been going through him for weeks now and even more so now like rebels are in the capital yeah they're getting closer and closer and closer to where he is and 
considering the capital's torture practices, how would you not be afraid mm-hmm. that other people would do the same thing to you? Yeah. And he's done a lot of things based off of fear, uh, especially that we learn through the Songbirds of S- and Snakes book. So yeah, I was just, I was kind of imagining some of these things, sending him back to being a seven-year-old, eight-year-old kid worried about starving to death and a war going on and the uncertainty of every day and some of the fears that initially made him support such a brutal, unequal system. Mm, yeah. Um, just surfacing again. Even though it's his fault that he's feeling it, mm-hmm. it would still be overwhelming, yeah. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanted to talk about someone else who's feeling hopeless. Oh, great. And that's PETA. Oh, PETA. As you discussed, we open this chapter with PETA arguing that he should be killed. I think in my previous read-throughs, I had kind of put Katniss's less emotional narrative onto PETA, that PETA was also kind of -of matter-of-factly just saying you should kill me, that he wasn't as emotional. But this read-through, I think I really challenged that, in particular because of your astute conversations about how PETA has not valued his life throughout Mm. the books. Yeah. And here, I think that putting myself in PETA's perspective was extremely powerful. and Not advice for someone who has depression? I mean, also true. Because, yeah, just the the despair I can imagine in him knowing that he killed Mitchell and how deep his sadness over that would be to to see himself as a monster. Mm-hmm. And or at least, you know, as Finnick lovingly pointed out, he didn't kill Mitchell. He did something that resulted in his death, but there's no way he could have known that he would push him off into another pod trap absolutely but from Peter's perspective yeah he murdered him and from Peter's perspective it wouldn't have mattered if he had known because he wasn't in control anyway Mm -hmm. and so feeling at best like you're just a weapon pointed at other people that you care about if not an actual monster yeah it's just so sad you know he he expresses gratitude that Gale would kill him before he lets the capital take him, which mm-hmm. also shows his fear of the torture that the capital would put him through again. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you know, you mentioned I'm someone with depression, and, and that depression often comes from my own feelings of despair or hopelessness. And so I really did feel connected to PETA in these moments in how he must be feeling so overwhelmingly hopeless here that any kind of living would be awful, that he could either be a weapon or a monster or tortured by the capital, and that any kind of life for him is worse than death. You know, yeah. he, he asks Katniss to see that he wants it to end, and she doesn't let him in a way that is selfish in a way that is not about 
what he wants or what kind of life he wants to live because at least where he's at right now he understandably doesn't feel like any kind of life is worth living because it will just cause more harm to himself or to the people that he loves Mm -hmm. but I, i appreciate how later on in the chapter he asks katniss whether she's still protecting him i was thinking like what would PETA think was Katniss's reason for not killing him? The fact that he thinks this is a possibility but is unsure, I think is powerful. Mm. Especially because he then asks why she would protect him. And I think that's really illuminating for PETA as an example of how he doesn't have value for his life. How he doesn't understand why she would want him to stay alive if he doesn't think that he should stay alive. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that I think despair is just awful for him. It's, it's a kind of rock bottom, I think, for him. And having put myself in his shoes to kind of feel that depression, to feel that despair and hopelessness, it also made Katniss's reaching out to like comb his hair even more powerful as a physical example of how she doesn't think he's a monster, Mm -hmm. but how she does see value in his life and worth in his life, even if he can't see it for himself. I can just imagine that even as Pete is struggling, continuing to struggle with all of these feelings and worries and hopelessness, that that would be really impactful for him. Yeah, and it's really nice idea too because if if we're just thinking about things conceptually yeah everything is terrible Mm -hmm. you know if he's thinking about what he has done what he could do what has been done to him there's no guarantee that they'll even succeed in what they're doing you Mm -hmm. know uh his parents are dead you know just like everything right it's just everything is terrible but then in this very, very small way, here's a sensation you can enjoy. Here is an act of kindness. Like yeah. kindness can still exist even in such dark times, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I could imagine that being meaningful to the point where now he can at least fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting... Like you said, that he asked, are you still trying to protect me? Because the PETA before the hijacking wouldn't have had to ask. Mm -hmm. In the quarter quell, he's like, Katniss, I don't know what deals you made with Hamish, (laughs) but I made some too. You know, like he already knew that she had made deals with Hamish. You know, like he was confident in that. And now it's to the point where he literally has to ask because he doesn't know mm-hmm. and not only because of how the hijacking has cast doubts over so many of his memories and his perceptions of things but also because he's seen himself uh, yeah. as different in in the ways that he is starkly different than he used to be i also found it really really well written even though the ways he was kind of phrasing, I want to be dead. You know, like he mm. wasn't using those stark, harsh, unambiguous words, which is 
what people do when they're in these depressive states of suicidal ideation. Like, oftentimes, we use euphemisms. We we soften kind of what we're saying, even though we feel the things. Yeah. But when we verbalize it, we soften how it sounds. Mm-hmm. So, I don't care if I die, is what he says. Well, that's not the same as wanting to. But, yeah. the, you know, it's it's saying the less bad version of what he's feeling or like can't you see that i want this to be over you know like yeah i just i thought that was really good because that is in all of my experiences that is how people (laughs) communicate uh oftentimes in emotional states like that and i think it also does add more support behind the idea that yeah, maybe suicidal ideation is something that he's been dealing with for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just because of his new circumstances that he's even willing to verbalize it at all. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Poor Peter. Um, I did also quickly just want to touch on Pollux's perspective. Mm. As he's going back to this awful place in the sewers where he spent five years in these terrible conditions and just revisiting this place of trauma. And he's doing so as part of a renegade military unit. Mm-hmm. And he's just a cameraman. Yeah. You know, like he's going into this awful place, which he already has trauma for, not only as part of a military unit when he's not a soldier, but as a renegade military unit that doesn't have any actual support. Mm-hmm. And again, he doesn't have any training or anything like that. And yet he still is a vital asset to them in their ability to navigate those sewers. He's still providing so much information and knowledge for them. Yeah, I think it's just a really impressive example of his character and his inner strength and his determination that he's in this circumstance and he's still, he's still affected, but he's not overcome. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's still pressing forward absolutely yeah I mean we get so little of Pollux but I'm glad that he is such a big part of this chapter yeah I would love to know what he did originally that led Mm. the capital to make him an AVOX um if he was already involved in you know some defiant things not enough to get killed for it yet but like he must have done something right that the capital didn't like and it's very clear why both he and his brother would want to uh, (laughs) be a part of this rebellion absolutely yeah and take the risk to join yeah take the capital down Mm -hmm. yeah well why don't we head into our touch points this is where we find connections between the narrative and what we see in our own society Yeah, I just have two kind of small ones. I loved how, I kind of mentioned a little bit before, League One was asking about, isn't it illegal to hoard Mm -hmm. food like this? Then Masala was saying, oh, this even started before the quarter quell because certain products, supplies, everything were becoming more scarce. Mm -hmm. And... Just hoarding scarce supplies. You know, it's yep. just like <laughs> I'm so glad she put that in there because <laughs> as soon as there's a scarcity, it's like let's 
hide things <laughs> wherever we can and get extra and it's just such a capital thing to do mm -hmm. and it's such a u.s thing to do european i'm sure australia and like all of these places where there's a majority white people it's just like automatic instinct mm -hmm. oh the pandemic started in 2020 let's buy way more toilet paper than we can possibly use <laughs> in the next two months you know and it's just if i might not be able to get it it's more important that i have more than if other people have none you mm -hmm. know it's just that that is the point of view the the perspective is i am the most important me and my little family or whatever it is like is the most important and more important than anyone else if they suffer oh well or they don't even think about them at all you know it's not even a thought that crosses their mind when you have other situations where that is not the case like uh earthquake and tsunami happened in japan and people are not going and hoarding everything mm -hmm. like they're helping they're not stealing things even if there are things just left out because of damage that happened they're waiting in line for their little portion of supplies you know it's just such a different way of going about life yeah yeah <laughs> i mean that's the thing about like the the capital is not a perfect illustration of capitalism but this is a great mirroring of capitalism because <laughs> capitalism at its core is all about hoarding mm -hmm. it's all about hoarding wealth like wealth doesn't become capital until it's been hoarded to such an extent that it can be invested to create more wealth mm -hmm. like that is the idea central to what capitalism is like it's all about hoarding and mm -hmm. doing so individualistically rather than as a society and creating a scarcity where there didn't need to be one exactly because uh, some people are hoarding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Precisely. So, yeah, like, I think that this is a, a really good touch point to look at some of the foundational issues with our society. Yeah. Helps cut right through the BS about, no, but capitalism is about free market and allowing people to just succeed and innovate. And it's liberty. My, able to make my own choices. Yeah shut up those people yeah the one percent definitely aren't making the <laughs> parameters for which you can make choices and mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. and then the second thing i just wanted to touch on is that during a war snow gets botox <laughs> <laughs> it's another just one line so perfect <laughs> because this is what the wealthy and powerful will do as other people are suffering they have their own priorities and their own conveniences luxuries privileges that they wouldn't think about giving up even in circumstances like war mm-hmm yeah i think mo <sighs> that's the thing i'm like 
would most people judge this action? I judge this action, but would most people? I literally don't know because also people will be like, oh, you've never had a manicure or a pedicure. I'm like, why would I spend my money on that? I don't need that. And there are refugees sleeping in tents in the snow. You know, like I just, I don't understand. It is, it is hard for me to comprehend things like that that are just like, pampering luxury things when there are people starving to death you know there mm. are people in really horrible circumstances like i don't even get haircuts anymore i do it at home <laughs> like and just anything i can cut out that is so unimportant to life you know it's just it, it it's meaningless like it, it really is <laughs> how nice my nails look is meaningless to me you know, it's just, it it just shows priorities, mm. right? And, and Snow is definitely showing his priorities here. Absolutely. And if Katniss is noticing, other people are noticing too, <laughs> which is what leads to the gales. And they're just like, everyone should die mm. in the capital or has been aligned with them, you know? <laughs> and the Britannies. I understand, I understand the rage. I just, I don't, I don't have the same conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> and it's okay. We're all going to die anyway from climate change because of all of these people's decisions. But you know, <laughs> I don't have to cause it. They're causing it. <laughs> but yes, what about you? What are your touch points? Well, that's interesting though, because my read on that, and this is a spoiler, Mm. but is that it's an example of Snow's worsening health. Mm. That he had to continue to get touched up because if he didn't, it would be even more obvious how much his health is affecting him. Yeah, I mean, I think the makeup, I was thinking about that, certainly, but like... Botox on the lips. Well, I don't know if it is Botox on the lips. It might just be the poison from on his lips from all the poison that he's drank. And I think that his lips are at the center of some of the things that are going wrong with him and his health. His mouth sores, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely possible. I don't know if having poison would make your lips swell. I mean, it's possible. Yeah. But yeah. But I'm also like, he would do this. So. Totally, yeah. <laughs> well, I also want to talk about hoarding, so we discussed that together. So my other touch point is on sewage systems. Ooh, fun. <laughs> because sewage systems are actually, I think, interesting. I'm just like, what even is our podcast? <laughs> right. Let's talk about sewage systems. <laughs> <laughs> and it's called Geek Between the Lines. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing is that I think sewage systems are a topic that people don't tend to think about or or talk about, but are also a crucial component to urban life. Very crucial, yes. And as societies urbanize, which is itself a pretty modern concept, in 1800, only 3% of the human population lived in cities. Now it's over half the human population. Mm -hmm. You know, so as increasing more people come to smaller and smaller areas of land, the waste that they create, both through their own bodies, but also through their consumption, has to go somewhere. Yeah. And so sewage systems become more and more necessary. And they're also a form of social control Mm -hmm. because they're a necessary resource. 
As I've talked about in the podcast a lot, my focus in studying history has been on the history of Los Angeles, and we actually have a really interesting history of sewage systems. Uh, <laughs> um, because No, I, I know I'll find it interesting. <laughs> it's just an absurd sentence. Yeah, well, so be it. Because for L.A., the establishment of a sewage system happened essentially at the same time as the Americanization of the region. In the Mexican period uh, and the Spanish period before that, water was essentially communally accessed and controlled uh, through what are known as sanjas, these kind of canals that were created uh, throughout the city, but for a small population. As the city starts to grow, especially after the, the 1870s, it's also when more and more Americans are coming in, taking over municipal government and changing utilities, and it changes from a communal control into an individualistic control, where the people who own property also own the sewage systems that are alongside those properties. And so, sewage systems start to be built in the southwestern part of the city, where most of the Americans are living. Sewage systems are then not built the same way in the more and more crowded, low-income Mexican and Chinese areas of the cities. By the 1890s, this is seen as a public health disaster, and the, yeah. the public health department is created basically as a way of targeting these Chinese and Mexican areas as what they saw as public health vectors for disease, which of course was blamed on their culture and their race <laughs> and all these other kinds of things, not in the fact that it was illegal for them to own land, and <laughs> yeah. they also were given the worst jobs and were forced into these awful conditions, not like they chose to be in them, and that yeah. the public utilities refused to provide sewage systems to those other areas. So here in LA, I think it's a good example of how as cities build, the utilities, the resources that are provided to certain areas are always going to be unequal. And in LA, it was also part of colonialism, not just economic inequality and capitalism, but certainly in the United States throughout history, these often correspond to racialized geographies of where some people live and some people do not, um, and how that ties into capitalism and things like that. So yeah, when I'm looking at the capital's sewer system, I'm just thinking about all of the resources that just go into running that sewage system. Mm -hmm. And then you think about what the seam sewage system is most likely like, which is probably much yeah. closer to the Zanhas. It's just a huge stark contrasted difference. And if the capital would utilize a fraction of the resources that they use on their own sewage systems in providing services for the districts, it would just be life-changing for many people. And that's not what happens. Uh, so yeah, you know, sewage systems, not exactly the sexiest topic, but... Speak for yourself. I think that it is a another fascinating way of thinking about social inequalities and the way that those are created and not natural. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, and they created an AVOX community to live down mm -hmm. there in them. Yep, yep. This always ties in with ideas of labor and things like that. Yeah, so capital's full of poo. <laughs> and not just in the sewage system. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yes, this is a great, great comment. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, let's go into our wonderments. These are the questions that we have or the things that we're wondering about after our read through. So what's on your mind? So I'm thinking about pods again, mm. because I know that some people have criticized pods being in the capital and this is just to make the less book more like the games and you know stuff like that so mm. you know I, since i've heard some of those criticisms I, I find more questions about them so in one of our previous episodes i had been thinking about if any of them were kind of experiments that people who would eventually put pods in the games would have done prior to perfecting things to learning how to create better ones and, and things like that and then mm -hmm. they just use them for this purpose but i was also thinking about like other options too for why they could be used rather than just machine guns or you know something that could be just as effective mm -hmm. but less potentially demolishing or you know and so I was also thinking about, like, if it could be university students who are going into this field to create things, and it's part of, like, them having pride in their work, like seeing it installed mm -hmm. places, uh, other classes learning how to install because they'll need to install them at the games. Also, maybe a desensitizing tactic to just become more and more okay with this sort of thing mm. um, since they will be creating them to use on children. Mm -hmm. It could even theoretically provide rationale or justification. See, you're surrounded by pods too, but because you're not misbehaving, mm. they don't need to be used on you, but the people in the districts are misbehaving, and so this is their punishment, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was also thinking about, like, maybe in this culture of extravagance that the capital has, maybe their weapons would be extravagant, too. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Maybe there are bored weapons makers like Beatty, you know, with the fancy bow and arrows that have voice activation, you know, like, it's not necessary, mm -hmm. but it's like, you can, so you do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, those were just some other kind of wonderings i was having about the situation with the pods yeah yeah interesting what about you uh i was wondering what was going on with the hunger games style montage of their pictures <laughs> the, uh, oh, maybe i shouldn't laugh at that because it's really terrible but <laughs> because to me it either seems like the capital is trying to draw some sort of comparison between the tributes who die in the Hunger Games and these soldiers who are dying in this war. Mm. Which for me, I'm just like, what useful through line is there for the capital's narrative to give that kind of connection? I mean, I guess I could see it being you don't mourn for the kids who die in the games. Don't mourn for these people either. It's just a part of what happens. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. It just, it feels like it's in a way elevating them rather than actually going along with Snow's message that these are kind of unimportant people in the scheme of things. But 
my other thought was maybe it was just that the capital, or at least the people who are still around in the capital, just don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's <laughs> this that is too. The yeah. only style that they understand. <laughs> or they're like, well, we have to <laughs> highlight who died. <laughs> Oh, we know how to do that. Snow we didn't do that even year. give clearance for it. He's just like, you're just going to show their photos, <laughs> and then I'm going to talk about them. And then he's watching the screen and sees the anthem. He's like, oh, my God. <laughs> A few people are going to die tonight. <laughs> yeah, he was already having to be controlled before yeah. Coin came in. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I'm just They're like, we can't just show them. We have to, like. At least add a flare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so whatever's going on with the Capitol, I think, is interesting uh, and revealing. Um, but I just don't understand oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> but let's move into our last section, our intentions. What we're taking away from these conversations. So what is your intention? I think my intention is to... Try to internalize the critique of hoarding things, like mm. the underlying issue of being chiefly concerned with how something affects you and not how it affects people you don't know. Not that at the beginning of the pandemic, I went and got... 20 things of toilet paper but there was the impulse of well other people are going to make these things not be available so I need to get some first yeah. <laughs> you know there is that I mean and not to say that it isn't a real problem because some people will do that and it can become a real problem totally. for people but then it's but societally manufactured <laughs> exactly it's like <laughs> You assume other people are going to do it because you know other people are going to do it, so then you do it too, and it, it's problematic, right? <laughs> but I still do have that impulse in situations like that because it's like, I don't want to not have toilet paper. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just as much as I will critique things like that and probably I uh, think about society and other people more than sadly the average person in the united states that doesn't mean that i don't have some of the same inclinations um in in situations like that so i'm glad you're saying that because you just have so much work to do yeah <laughs> but no that's that's a very admirable intention <laughs> i think for me it's gonna be how i look at these next few chapters because I was really just so moved by putting myself in Peter's shoes mm. in this chapter that I really want to kind of make that a ongoing way I engage with the book and seeing how for Peta, as he is at possibly the lowest low of his life, what that means for himself and his decisions and his relationships and how he experiences these awful circumstances and the things that he chooses to do and the ways that he chooses to be with others, uh, I think is going to be really fascinating and I'm sure very powerful as well. Oh, Peta. Oh, Peta. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this week's discussion. So what's happening 
next time on The Hunger Games. The worst chapter ever. Chapter 22. 20 poo. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website and our social media in the episode description. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek Geek out. out!